0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Beyond the Bio, where we share the stories of the extraordinary people at Bain and the value they bring to the firm. This season, we're exploring a topic that's important to us and our listeners, prioritizing health and wellness. As we kick off this four-part series, our guests will be talking about their journeys to Bain like they always do, but we'll also be discussing how Bain is thinking about worker well-being and creating innovative wellness initiatives inside the firm. Our guests will also be sharing their perspective on what working sustainably looks like and shedding light on mental health. From these chats, the importance of normalizing conversations about mental health in the workplace is really clear, and it's really important that we have more of those conversations. Joining me today is Andrew Schwedell, a partner in our New York office. Today, I'm really glad that Andrew will be discussing his journey to Bain, Bain's focus on what workers want out of their jobs and out of their lives, and what the future of work looks like in a post-pandemic workforce. Andrew, great to have you here today. Happy to be here. Thanks, Keith. So as we do, I want to start with a little bit of your background before Bain. You had some exposure to the business world before college. So did you go into college knowing that you would always want to go into business?
1: I thought that that was a likely possibility, although not a certainty. My family had a small business, a textile factory, and I worked several summers in high school in the factory. And so that was a different kind of work, certainly, than we do at Bain. But that was my first real exposure to the business world.
0: So, what did you decide to do when you just dis- when it was time to leave for college?
1: I was very interested in you know a liberal arts education program, so I, I went to University of Pennsylvania and I was a history major, and I really didn't know uh, you know exactly what I would do for a job after college. In fact, I thought I I might go into business, but I thought I might go into law as well. So I took both the LSAT and the GMAT tests, but pretty quickly decided by senior year that I I wanted to do at least try business, and so I. I looked for jobs uh, then. It was a tough environment because it was a recession, but eventually ended up taking a job in insurance for a large broker named Martian McLennan.
0: Now, did you consider other types of entrepreneurial paths, you know, given that your family had the small business? I can't imagine that there were a ton of options during a recession for anyone, but you said you had a history major. I think you, you major or minored in French as well. What was the job search like and were people surprised to see your resume coming across their desks?
1: I was uh, pretty unsophisticated about the job search, to be honest. I think I had one consulting interview. It wasn't with Bain. Probably a third of the way into it, they sprung a case interview on me, which I was totally unprepared for. So that did not go particularly well. I did have the French minor, and I spent my junior year of college in Paris. So I also had this interest in international affairs. And I, I ended up looking at one job that was with a very small business and kind of an international sales role. But decided that for somebody who really didn't have any kind of formal business background or training, I'd be better off in a larger company where I could get, you know, more more grounding in business fundamentals.
0: Yeah, I remember coming out with an engineering degree and thinking, you know, startups could be really interesting, but one of the other opportunities I was considering was, you know, with a large tech company, you know, and they had a rotation program and there were other people in the program and there was a whole structure around it, which I thought would be a huge win. When you worked there for a couple of years, you did decide to go back to business school. Why did you decide that going to school and going to Tuck in particular was a great next step for you in your career?
1: Well, you know, I found that I was very interested in business topics. My job was an insurance broker. So we would serve corporate clients and help them put together property and casualty insurance programs and then help negotiate on their behalf with insurance companies. And, you know, I would say I found that work maybe moderately interesting at best, which is kind of funny because now I spend a lot of my time in insurance. So we can come back to that. But what I found interesting was just thinking about my employer as a business, our position relative to competitors. And I had all kinds of ideas for ways we could do things better, but that really wasn't part of the job. I figured that going to business school would be a chance to get on a different track, to get exposure to strategy and marketing and technology and all other kinds of issues that you know I didn't, really didn't use that much in my day-to-day job. And so I looked at a bunch of business school programs. I chose Tuck because, mainly because it was a small school and in a remote location. And that was not my experience with undergrad, but a lot of my friends, as I was living in New York at the time, had gone to colleges that were a lot more like Tuck. And, and they loved it. And so I thought that that culture and everything I'd heard about it in terms of really getting to know everybody and having great relationships with your classmates, and really everybody there, you know, wanting to be there and focused on the school because it was kind of in the middle of nowhere. I found that very compelling. And that, in fact, did turn out to be the case. So that was a great experience.
0: Yeah. And we have a lot of alums from Tuck at Bain these days. It's a hugely important school for us. And I think to a person, they all said their experience was just phenomenal. And the community at Tuck and the relationships they built at Tuck were just such a huge part of their development as people that it's a consistent theme that I hear from everyone at Tuck.
1: Yeah, I very rarely met a person who did not have a great experience there. And the way people describe the culture at Tuck is you know, similar, I think, to the culture of Bain. So there's a, a particularly good fit, I think, for, for people who've been through that school.
0: Right. Now, while you were at Tuck, you got your first taste of consulting during that summer. What led you to consulting and what did you find that you liked and didn't like about the industry during that first consulting experience?
1: You know, at the time, probably a third of the class went into some kind of finance-related job, a third went into some kind of consulting job, and a third did a variety of other things, usually marketing or, or brand management. I happen to be friends with a lot of people who are interested in consulting. They'd either mm-hmm. been consultants or business school or they knew they wanted to do it. I really enjoyed some of the strategic-type discussions we had in classes first year the consulting firms were well organized and, and recruited on campus, so I, you know, I thought that that would be an attractive route to go. And probably, like a lot of people, if nothing else, at least it would open up other options, and you'd right. learn a lot. So, yeah, I uh, interviewed uh, with a few different firms. I ended up working for the summer at what was at the time called Anderson Consulting, now mm-hmm. Accenture. So that was my first exposure to the industry.
0: Now, I have to ask, given my recruiting role at Bain, why didn't you summer with Bain?
1: I didn't get an interview. I did drop a resume with Bain. You know, I got a a letter that said, basically, it's a very competitive process and uh, we're not able to interview everybody. So I guess I offer that up and I saved the letter, by the way. Sometimes that would provide motivation in in later years. But I offer that up to just say, uh, you know, be persistent. Yep. So it didn't work out first year, but uh, it did work out second
0: year. The story about persistence is certainly one that I've seen at Bain. Uh, I think I was telling you when we were preparing for today. You know, the person who gave me my Bain offer was a partner who had been denied a job at Bain as an ACI, as an AC, as a summer associate, and then finally got the job when he finished business school and hit his stride there. So you never know unless you take the chance.
1: You just stay with it. And I you know, knew that the people in my class that, I, that were in the consulting sphere that I you know, really liked and respected it disproportionately were from Bain. I think certainly being close to those people and getting advice from them and then probably having them put in a good word for me helped ultimately. And so I think persistence is key.
0: Ultimately, you had a strong summer and you came back full-time. You joined the Boston office when you joined, but you didn't only work in Boston. And did you choose to focus on insurance where you had some experience, or did you want to see some different things when you got here?
1: I definitely wanted to see different things. If anything, I, I probably didn't want to work in insurance. I did have one insurance client in my first year, but I also had telecom clients and other financial services clients. And after a year in Boston, I went to Australia for six months. And that was just a great experience to try a different office. I worked on an airline there for six months, and that was a very interesting project. I learned a lot on that. Uh, had a great kind of step-up role on the team. I came back to Boston and worked in private equity for probably 18 months, and so saw a lot of different industries through that, consumer products, industrials, tech, healthcare. And then I moved to San Francisco, you know, and I was in San Francisco for about eight and a half years and again, did a bunch of things, a lot of tech, uh, as you might imagine, on the West Coast, a lot of private equity work again and some health care mm-hmm. before kind of ultimately settling back in financial services.
0: What led you to make the move across country? Uh, you had sort of gone to college out east twice, were working out east and then moved literally across the country in the middle of your career at the time.
1: I was mainly looking for a new adventure and a a new place to live. I think I was a little bit tired of Boston, to be honest. This was 1999, San Francisco, and and Silicon Valley was an exciting place to be. You know, we were reinventing the world. I wanted to get closer to tech. I had a lot of friends out there, and so it felt like a good stage in life to to try something like that.
0: So... Andrew, you get promoted to partner, and we really haven't talked about what industry you decided to specialize in. You, like a lot of us, especially at that time, did a lot of different industries. And for me, that was part of the value proposition of coming to Bain. But around that time, we really started investing and developing in our practice area. So when you became a partner, did you know exactly what you were going to do? Or did you have a sense of what path you were going to take as a partner as we were building our practice capabilities?
1: I didn't really. And there were probably three or four options I could have gone and considered, I had been working for a while for a health insurance client. And so arguably that could have put me on a path for healthcare or financial services. And I had done a lot of technology work and I'd done a lot of private equity work. So those were probably four areas where I could have affiliated. You know, the reason I kind of went deeper in financial services, I, I guess there was part of it that just I had that heritage and history right. there. You know, I lived in New York for a while. I knew the industry to some extent. We knew that that was a growth priority for Bain because we were very small players in financial services at the time. And we really had you know, nobody else on the West Coast that was covering that sector. You know, It just wasn't as big a part of the economy mm-hmm. there. So that gave me an opportunity early on maybe to see more things, maybe to play a little bit more of a step-up role in, in helping build the business and just accelerated learning. And so that's, that's ultimately why I, I chose to do that.
0: And you moved back to New York during that time, right?
1: A few years later. I mean, okay. I, I really enjoyed living in San Francisco. And I, after I got promoted, I ended up leading our practice uh, in the Americas, our financial services practice. And we knew we wanted to invest in the practice and build a team and hire people. And, you know, we didn't want to hire them in San Francisco. We wanted to hire them in New York or maybe Chicago or Atlanta. So uh, the, the center of gravity was on the East Coast. And, and so eventually realized that it made sense to, to move back East.
0: Let's talk a little bit about some of the innovations that you had while you were in New York starting with the Macro Trends Group. Let's talk a little bit about what that group is and and how it came to be at Bain.
1: I really have to give primary credit for this to Karen Harris who kind of founded the group and and really leads it along with Austin Kimson. Karen and Austin were both working with me in financial services. You know, both had an interest as did I in macro trends and it was 2008, 2007, really, and macro trends was becoming more important. We'd been through a period for maybe 10 or 15 years where the clients didn't really have to think about macro, maybe more, maybe 20 years. You know, People now call it the great moderation. And so our clients and Bain were very focused on microeconomics, on the dynamics of an industry and patterns of competition and that sort of thing. And you could take for granted that the larger business environment would be stable. The Cold War had ended, the interest rates were low, inflation was low. And that started to change, you know, pretty significantly around 2007.
0: When you talk about macro and micro, for those of listening who don't have a background in economics or in finance, what would you define as macro trends? As we start talking about the group, it's probably helpful for them to understand the difference between macro and micro. You started to get into it there and we can go a little bit deeper.
1: Sure. By macro, I really mean the big structural forces that shape the business environment. So macroeconomic issues would be things like just the overall growth rate in the economy, interest rates, inflation levels, unemployment. But we also look at major demographic trends. You know, is the population aging? How rapidly is it aging? What does it mean if you have a, a lot of young workers versus a much older society? There are macro kind of technology trends like automation and how that can reshape industries. And then there are macro political and geopolitical trends like what is the role of government and the stance of government towards business? Are we in a world that is continuing to globalize or as we're seeing today, deglobalize? So those were questions that weren't really top of mind for a lot of business leaders for many years and became a lot more important around 2007, 2008. So we had people with an interest in it. We had clients and partners asking us for our point of view on it. And so we we launched this capability to be able to answer those questions.
0: Andrew, MacroTrends picks up momentum once it launches and starts to build that track record. And it became something a lot bigger inside Bain. Let's talk a little bit about what that bigger thing is and how it came to be.
1: So we really started MacroTrends, as I said, in 2007, 2008. By 2015, I think we'd had a lot of momentum and a track record and a growing set of, of both partners and clients who were working with us. And And we realized that we could expand that capability to a broader, I'll call it, team that would look at other longer-term structural trends that affected business. So cross-industry, cross-geography, trends in the nature of how businesses compete. What is becoming more or less important? What are the winning models likely to be? Who are going to be the next generation of iconic companies that dominate this era? And so we launched another group called Bain Futures and made that very global. I'm one of three co-chairs of that group, uh, and I sit in New York, but the others are in London and Hong Kong. And we started doing some work early on around what we call the firm of the future and developed a point of view that you can really chart the evolution of business through distinct eras. And there have been six or seven eras. Most of us grew up in an era that we called the shareholder primacy era. And each era has sort of an iconic company or business leader. Shareholder primacy, you'd probably look at, say, Jack Welch in GE of the 1990s. But private equity was also very associated with this era, the rise of private equity. And we said, we are in a shift to a new era, which we've named the era of scale insurgency. And so the winning companies in this era are going to be both big and fast. And what does that mean? What does that mean for how you might compete differently and the rules of strategy that are changing? What does it mean for how you might organize yourself differently? And what does it mean for leadership and talent? And so we've been talking about that for several years. And then we, we take on other topics, which I know we'll get to in a minute. But that was really meant to be a platform that was not macroeconomic, but not industry specific either, broad cross-business trends.
0: Now, for those of us who were in the business world during the dot-com era, we saw insurgents, but they tended to be sort of scrappy startups. And you know, for every 10, one of them might actually make a big difference or, or something like that. But when you say scale insurgency, can you maybe give an example of what that might look like for people listening who can't quite get their arms around what that means or what it looks like in the marketplace?
1: Sure. Well, there are some Iconic company examples that will come to mind, largely associated either with Silicon Valley or China. You know, Amazon, Apple, Google, those types of gigantic platforms that are able to build and scale new businesses with relatively fewer people or direct assets Mm -hmm. enabled by technology in China. You would look at examples like Alibaba or Tencent or Ping An, the large insurance company and financial group. But I wouldn't limit it to tech companies or kind of natively tech companies, let's say. I would put you know, companies like Starbucks and Vanguard and Financial Services in this category. Another Chinese company that's probably less of a household name is Hire. And they are a, um, a white goods manufacturer. They make large appliances. Mm-hmm. And what these companies all have in common is a number of things. One is they have managed to escape the trap of having to choose either between being big and low cost or being nimble and friendly to customers. Right. And they're able to do that largely by using data to drive personalization at scale. So typically when we analyze industries, we look at many different things, but a couple of metrics we look at are relative market share, how big you are compared to competitors. And we look at NPS, your net promoter score, how much your customers like you. And in most industries, you see an inverse relationship between those two things. The largest player is not generally the one that is beloved by customers. But scale insurgents are able to avoid that trap. And you see companies like Verizon is a good example, the NPS leader and the scale leader in mobile telephony in the U.S. And so companies are able to do that as data and digital have penetrated deeper into their businesses. So that's one hallmark of a scale insurgent. Another is really driving more growth through building entirely new businesses, You know, at Bain, we've written about strategy for 30 years through a framework of profit from the core. Faster your core and then grow smartly into a close adjacency, and only then do you go into kind of farther adjacencies. And I think that still very much holds true, but in the last 10 years, we've seen a much greater share of growth coming from new businesses. And scale insurgents do a bunch of things to really help them build new businesses and scale them much faster than big lumbering firms used to be able
0: to do. So you take the Bain Futures Group, you start writing about the firm of the future, and then you start getting into some other things about the worker of the future and and things like that. What were some of the insights that you all were starting to uncover as you did that work?
1: We ultimately wanted to relate it back to firms. What do firms need to think about if they want to be successful? And we said, if these ideas of scale insurgency are kind of the, the macro level of how firms compete, then people are the almost the subatomic level. It all depends on what people do and people play different roles. They're workers and consumers. And they're citizens of communities in which firms operate. And you know, in some cases, they're investors in those same firms. So he said, well, let's pick one of those roles and start somewhere. And we said, we'll start with the individual as worker. And what is happening with individuals as workers? What's changing in terms of their expectations? Why do they go to work? What do they expect to get out of a job? Which I think was a little bit of a different angle. I mean, there's a lot of people writing about the future of work, but not generally taking the lens. It's usually coming from the lens of what companies want you know, how are we going to organize a company? What skills are we going to need? And not so much, what do people want? So we did a bunch of research and we wanted it to be very global and we wanted it to be broadly representative of the workforce. So not just focused on knowledge workers in management, but you know representing the full workforce. We looked at 12 markets across all the major regions of the world, talked about 25,000 people. The main thing we found was that What people want is really diverse, and there is no single answer. There are a bunch of patterns, I call it kind of a palette almost, of motivation that is pretty specific to different individuals. And we can talk about broad types, but people do want different things. The most important thing people want, probably not surprisingly, is good compensation. But that's only 20% of people, 25% of people globally who cite that as the most important thing. There's a lot of room for other things as well. And and that would include things like flexibility in a job. That's increasingly important to younger workers, increasingly important to women. Job security and stability Mm -hmm. is also. Then there are things like learning and growth on the job, affiliation and friendship and social relationships at work. You know, work has to some extent replaced, at least in the US, other activities for a lot of people that used to happen through. You know, civic associations and churches and you know, local involvement and family and people. By the way, want to reset that balance and not work quite so much, but they also look to work to provide some of those things that maybe they used to get in other domains of life.
0: And so, when you're doing that work, you start to identify, you know, these types of people or these archetypes. You know, are there some that? Are way more common in, say, the US versus a developed market or versus Europe or Asia? Like how do we think about those archetypes and what it means for companies these days?
1: Yeah, so let me talk about the archetypes a bit because we said, wow, these, these motivations are very diverse, and yet we tend to manage talent around the idea of the average worker. You know, we have a standard recruiting process and, and career pathing and compensation and performance management system. And it just doesn't make sense in a world that that has all of those different profiles. We broadly found six archetypes, what we called operators, and that is the largest share of the workforce in most markets. Probably think about that as 20 to 25% of the workforce. These are people, frankly, who want a good job, but they see a job as just a job. They're not looking to their job to provide their deeper meaning and purpose in life. They want to have stability in the job, and they really value camaraderie and interaction with their coworkers. They're pretty risk-averse. Then we have givers, and givers are, as the name implies, people who tend to really value the ability to help others. That group is also somewhat risk averse. They do look for meaning and purpose and impact in their work through helping others. They also put a high premium on relationships with coworkers.
0: Would that be like healthcare workers or educators like that group?
1: Those would be the two classic examples. By the way, you'll see all archetypes in all fields. Right. So I want to be careful not to say there's a perfect, you know, match or fit of, of one industry right. to one archetype. But yes, you'll see a lot of givers in professions like healthcare work and, and education. Artisans are people who really value mastery of their craft and technical expertise. And they are on a journey of lifelong learning, but it's it's generally I want to go deep and become the best at something. They tend to be you know more interdirected, I would say. Value autonomy at work, you know, don't micromanage me, but not so much I need to be part of a broad team, the way you might find with a giver or an operator. Then you have explorers, uh, and explorers are people who also really want learning and growth, but they want variety. They want to try new things, they may get bored easily. They are more risk tolerant, let's say. They're pretty externally oriented and, and they really value flexibility. And then the final two archetypes are strivers and pioneers. Strivers are very achievement oriented people, uh, focused. They're forward planners. They tend to be more risk averse. They're status motivated and they want to get ahead and do well. Pioneers are people who are on a mission to change the world. They are very risk seeking. This is where a lot of entrepreneurs and and kind of company founders would come from. So you've got these six archetypes. They're present everywhere. You know, you asked about differences by country. You see uh, probably a slightly higher share of strivers in Japan. A higher share of pioneers in some emerging markets. Uh, Nigeria, I think, was the highest one on our index, followed by India. Yeah, interestingly, you'll see more pioneers and more givers in developing markets versus developed markets. You'll see more strivers and artisans in developed markets. There are a few demographic differences. Basically, age is, is probably the largest driver of that. You have more strivers and pioneers among young people. And as they age, strivers and pioneers tend to evolve into artisans and givers to a greater extent. We didn't see big differences by gender, by the way. I would say the, the one that probably spiked a little bit was uh, there were more women who were givers. But other than that, it was a pretty similar mix across most markets.
0: Now, for people listening, I understand there's a quiz online that they can take to figure out what type they are. Can you say a little bit about that? Just real quick. We'll put it in the show notes as well.
1: Sure. Yeah. It's a very simple, uh, I think it's 10 questions. It'll probably take about a minute or two. And it's just asking you to kind of choose on a spectrum and make trade-offs around how important different things are to you. And from that, you'll get a, a I'll call it a primary archetype because nobody is a hundred percent one thing. We'll all have elements of different archetypes in our personality and they will change over time. As I noted, I think it's helpful just as a tool of self-knowledge almost. Right. And thinking about, well, if I'm an explorer or if I'm a pioneer, you know, how might I think about a career and and different experiences? Uh, How does the values of my company, how do those show up every day and how do I experience them? So I'm hopeful that this will be a useful tool for people to kind of know themselves better and manage their own careers. And a helpful tool for companies to think about how to attract people of different types how to help them thrive at the company and make the most out of their potential, how to put uh, teams together right. that get the best of all worlds. I I want to be careful and say there is no one right or wrong archetype. You'll have a mix in every part of your business. And I think the key is how do you uh, get the benefit of all of those different perspectives and skills that people bring to the company?
0: Exactly. And, and, Bringing teams together with that type of diversity is a lens that hopefully a lot of companies will start doing as they think about innovation or they think about planning or they think about sort of managing through difficult times. Speaking of difficult times, we're recording this prayerfully on the back end of a pretty rough two years for everyone as we go through COVID. You know, how has that changed the workforce and people's attitudes about work from the perspective of the group that you're leading at Bain?
1: Yeah, so let me, let me talk about a few other trends that kind of came out of the work that are shaped by technology and the pandemic. And I say both because some of these were underway well before the pandemic, but got accelerated by it. So the first is, you know, the increasing prevalence of kind of a contract labor force or gig work type arrangements. It's, right. it's almost a return in some ways to a pre-industrial revolution system where people used to work at home and do their sewing and, and you know, put goods together and then get paid by the piece. And we've gone back to that in, in parts of the economy. Uh, you know, we have 15 million gig workers in the U.S., 30 million in Indonesia, 200 million in China. And that population of workers is less happy and less engaged with their employer than the full-time workers. Right. You know, by a pretty meaningful amount, 10 to 15 points lower engagement. Wow. And I think the main reason for that, or probably two reasons, one is less stability and job security in those arrangements, and less connectedness to fellow workers. If you think back to the archetypes that mm-hmm. we discussed, you'll have mm-hmm. a lot of operators in that group. And they really want stability and connections of workers, and it's harder to get that. Right. At least today, the way a lot of firms run those contract workforces. A second one is the whole experiment in uh, remote work, working from home. You know, some people would call it living at work. You know, that's really interesting to me in terms of how different people's views are on on the mm-hmm. desirability of remote work. You know, you have 25% of people basically globally who say they never want to go back into an office, 25% of people who say they want to go back full time, and 50% of people who want some form of hybrid,
0: mm-hmm. but that
1: 50% is almost evenly split in terms of how many days a week they want to be in the office. Right. So how do you design HR policies that accommodate the needs of all those different groups? Right. There's no consensus. And so there's a lot of experimentation and it's stressful for people. And then the third trend is automation. And you know we saw this certainly before COVID, but COVID and the labor shortages that we've experienced now in the last year or so have right. really accelerated that. And so you've got on the one hand, just displacement of a lot of jobs, which is stressful for people. And in our survey, we asked, by the way, you know, do you expect your job to be automated in the next five to 10 years? A pretty meaningful percentage of people, like 40, 50, 60% of people in most markets said yes. But that also, and here's the more optimistic spin, creates more opportunity to use automation to make jobs better, to get rid of the more mundane aspects right. and to let humans focus on the things that humans do uniquely well. Creative problem solving, interpersonal relationships, et But you add all of that up and you've got massive stress and pressure on workers. 60% of people in our survey globally said that they are fundamentally rethinking their work-life balance as a result of COVID. 50 to 60% of people, depending on the market and the age group, describe themselves as stressed or overwhelmed at work. Those numbers are higher for younger workers, they're higher for more educated workers, they're higher for women. And the sources of stress are multiple, Not all of them have to do with work, but the biggest one is financial stability, security. You know, will I have a stable income? Will I have the ability to get ahead and have a better standard of living than my parents? Will I be able to retire? So, you know, if you're running a company these days, you're trying to deal with all this change, remote work, experiments, hybrid models, reskilling, and just know that you've got a workforce that is stretched from a mental and personal capacity standpoint because of some of these issues.
0: What I really like about what you're describing, Andrew, is that for many years, especially when I first started my career 25 plus years ago, talking about those types of issues, talking about stress, talking about what people wanted out of work, what they wanted on their life outside of work, was almost like, well, that's just because they're not tough enough to do the job. And I think there were some companies that got it, but a lot of companies that just said, well, this is the deal, take it or leave it. And the work that you're doing is actually providing the data to say, this is a fundamental shift in the workforce and their expectations. And you can't continue to have the attitude that people had in the 90s and even in the 80s towards the workforce, because times are different now.
1: Yeah, and I hope companies will come to that realization for enlightened self-interest reasons. But there's always the hard self-interest part of it, which is in the 80s and 90s, we had plentiful labor. We had uh, a younger workforce. We still had room for women entering the workforce in greater numbers and getting participation rates up. We had a globalizing economy with China and India coming online. so there was abundant labor and you know we're not in that world today. right and So I think if nothing else employers are going to realize and are realizing that you have to do everything you can to, to attract the right talent and then to hold on to that talent help it develop and evolve. And and I don't know that we're going to go back to lifetime employment, but I think we might go more in that direction. People saying mm-hmm. I can help somebody accommodate a career that has different phases. Ideally, a company or or maybe leaving for a time and then coming back, but having a much longer, deeper relationship with your employees than we've had in the last 10 or 20 years.
0: If I think about my own journey, you know, from starting work single and then being married and then having one or two young kids and then having teenagers There was a time when that would require each chapter would require a different employer and a different job to accommodate what I was trying to get. And now you can see companies sort of bending and flexing the model to accommodate people along that journey the whole time, which is really awesome to see, you know. This is a great lead into the next conversation we're going to have on the podcast with Mackenzie Morrison, who's actually leading a lot of the wellness initiatives at work here at Bain. We're going to talk a little bit more about how we take that work that you're doing and apply that inside Bain, because we're not just advising companies. We're also a company with a workforce. And in some ways, we like to think of it as our only asset is the people that we have. And they go home every night and choose whether or not they want to come back. That is a daily question we have to make sure we're answering.
1: Yeah, no, it's it's fascinating to see some of these things applied at our own firm. And as you know, our workforce has grown rapidly and it's very global and it's more diverse on multiple dimensions, you know, different skill sets, different educational backgrounds. And so we can't manage it with a one size fits all approach. So we're on this journey along with our clients.
0: And Andrew, I want to just end with a question about the future of the work that you're doing. You know, what are the next couple of questions on the horizon for you and the team to be answering as we wrap up this conversation for today?
1: I think we're still very much in the early days of what the worker of the future, what that will mean for companies and how to win on talent in that world and how to really get good at business building and do that repeatedly at scale in a world that is more turbulent than ever. If I go back to the macro trends part of the conversation, and we haven't talked today about the fact that there's a major war going on, unfortunately, that will further destabilize the world. So as we're doing all this work on the firm of the future and the worker of the future, we're also still talking to clients a lot about just how to become more resilient. Right. How to become more flexible and adaptable in this world that is changing more rapidly than ever. And so that's probably some of the areas that I'll I'll continue to focus on in the coming years.
0: Great. And Andrew, I know when we were talking about this, we'll put a bunch of links to some of the reports and the quiz that you mentioned earlier. But a lot of the research that you're doing is working with people at Bain. So people joining Bain, you know, can be on the teams doing some of the research, right?
1: Yes. Absolutely.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you for coming on today and kicking off this series. We're really excited about the work that your team is doing around the world, informing our clients and informing Bain, and hopefully helping the workforce of the future sort of find the balance that they've been looking for in life. And thanks for all of that.
1: All right. Thanks, Keith. Enjoyed it.
0: We hope you enjoyed learning about how Bain is focusing on new ways of working and worker priorities. Be sure to check out our episode with our Director of Global Professional Development, Mackenzie Morrison. In that episode, we discuss Bain's health and wellness initiatives in more detail.